and Eric, thank you for thank you for your introduction. And um, I'm really grateful to get to hang out with you guys for a little bit this weekend. And um, I uh, I don't say that in a cliche way, right? It's kind of customary when somebody comes in. Just really grateful to be here. Feel real privileged. Uh, that's kind of what you say, I guess. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I mean it sincerely. Um, I count it as a real privilege to get to be a part of this. So thanks. Um, as Eric said, uh, my name is Brett. I've been married to my wife Maggie for, we just had our 15th anniversary. Three little girls. Uh, my oldest is actually, uh, Caden doesn't remember me, but Eric's oldest son, Caden, right there. I've got a picture of him as a newborn with my newborn daughter that I'll embarrass you with at some point, Caden. Um, I think I, I think you're maybe even nude in it or something fun like that. So we'll, we'll have some fun looking, showing that off to all the guys and your friends. Um, I've known Eric for a long time, uh, and right away... Uh, I knew that Eric was a, a good communicator of God's word, uh, as I'm sure he's been faithful to do here. Uh, I've also known he's had a flair for the dramatic, which I don't know if he's carried over to here or not. Uh, but Eric had uh, had a few talks in his repertoire back then was when he was working with college students that were notorious. You just knew him. You, you knew Eric wanted to give these talks. And there was one in particular, we were speaking at a retreat together, he and I, and we were uh, alternating talks, and he really wanted to give the talk that really described the fall, you know, Adam and Eve and the fall and, and eating of the forbidden fruit. And the reason he liked to give it was because um, he, had this, he had this moment in the talk. And I don't know if you've done that here. Have you done it here? Wow, you've done it here too. It's carried over. Uh, so maybe some of you know what I'm talking about. Uh, he had an apple. And he loved talking about, he had a mirror and an apple. You guys know where I'm going with this, for those of you. And, and the mirror was, was set up uh, to help us realize that we were created to, to be image bearers of God and reflect his image. And it, it was set up behind him. I can still remember where, you know, where, you know, where I heard this first. And all, about 200, 250 college students there or something like that. And then Eric would pull out his apple and say, you know, but Adam and Eve... Uh, listen, they, they decided to listen to Satan rather than God. And as he had kind of lulled uh, the crowd asleep, he would then take the apple in full wind-up. I mean, full wind-up. The mirror's like right here, you know, two feet behind him. Take the apple and just shatter the mirror with it. And, uh, and then he would kind of turn back around uh, knowing he just proved his point, you know. Uh, sin shattered our image-bearing capacity, broke our image-bearing capacity, and, and uh, it stands out to me. I, th I think it stood out to a lot of college students as well. And um, Anyway, I've got all kinds of fun Eric stories. We'll have to, back when he was just known as Coer, so we can talk about that at some point. Well, I want to begin our time together by asking a question. I think it's a particularly important question. I think it might be one of the most important questions, actually, and, and I want to spend some time thinking about this question with you. Um, but I want to start the weekend by having you think about it uh, at your tables first. And here's the question. I've, I've taken some time to really think about it, uh, how I wanted to state it. So it's stated in a, in a real specific way. 
It says, uh, the question is this, what are the identifying markers of one's maturity? Do I have that in the notebook? I can't remember if I did. What are the identifying markers of one's maturity? Now, just to clarify before I give you some time to think about that question, you're going to hear me use that word maturity somewhat interchangeably this weekend. Uh, what I mean specifically by maturity in this context is a mature male in the eyes of the Lord. That's specifically what I mean. So you might hear me say things like godliness synonymously with maturity or Christ-likeness or kind of the true measure of what it means to be a man. So that, I mean the same thing. For this weekend, I mean the same thing as I'm saying those words. And I think this is a pretty important question, right, when you put it in those terms. What are the identifying markers of one's maturity, one's godliness, one's Christ-likeness, one's being authentically a man? Okay, it's a big question. So here's what I'd like you to do. You don't need to do this table-wide, but you can. I just want you to take a second at your tables and come up with a list for me of what you guys think are identifying markers. And, you know, just, just, um, yeah, as as many as you want. We're going to take just about a minute to do that. So have a quick discussion at your table around that question specifically. All right? Someone keep a list for your table just as you're spitting out ideas. Make sure you interact a little bit at your table just so that we can, uh, you can hear other people's ideas as well. All right, I'm hearing less conversations. So write down your last one here and uh, wrap up for me. All right, just a show of hands. Um, show of hands here uh, for your table. Uh, of the tables, um, who had more than one trait they wrote down? Just out of curiosity, raise your hand if you have kind of a, you know, a little bit longer of a list. Great. Now, well, so, so for all of us then, this may come, what, uh, come as somewhat of a surprise. Um, but this question really just has one answer biblically. Um, and what I want to do is spend the remainder of our time together investigating and understanding what that answer is. Um, 
And, and to answer it, I want us to go ahead and look at God's word. So if you would, uh, flip over in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. And uh, if you're unfamiliar uh, with how to find this book, no worries at all. Uh, just start over there in the New Testament with the Gospels and go over through Acts and Romans, and you'll land at Paul's first letter to the church of Corinth. And uh, uh, that's where we're going to go this evening and for the rest of this week. And as you turn there, I want to uh, nip something in the bud uh, off, off the get here tonight, and that's this. I, I just know, well, I shouldn't say I know, but if you're anything like me, some of you, um, if you're familiar with this text, you're already thinking something like this. What? 1 Corinthians 13? Are we at a wedding? Did I just walk into a women's retreat? What, what are we doing here with this gushy text that I hear read at weddings or that I saw on my, you know, framed at my grandmother's house with cross-stitching, right? I think that's the perception a lot of times if you're familiar with this passage that this verse has. And I just want to say this, to understand this text as a gushy, sentimental text, as it's often portrayed, is to fundamentally... Uh, misunderstand it. And, and it causes us to neglect texts like these at our own peril. Uh, because what I want to submit to you is that I don't know if there's a better text in the Bible that does a better, more concise, more beautiful job at answering this really important question, right? I mean, can you think of many more questions that are up on that tier of importance for us? What are the marks of maturity? What are the marks of godliness? What is the mark of maturity? What is the mark of God? I mean, that, that, the answer to that question should be at the very core of how we live, how we make decisions. If we've ever thought and processed that question, then we really need to ask ourselves, why not? What, what have we been doing? How do we know that we've been fighting the right battles, moving the right direction, right? In this text, gets right at the heart of the answer to that question. Listen to a few of the quotes. I think I have them there on your notebook uh, about what some commentators have said about this passage. Just to emphasize its importance to you, once again, one commentator said that this is the greatest, strongest, deepest thing that Paul ever wrote. That's saying a lot. And I like what Leon Morris said in his commentary. He says this. He concludes the whole chapter that he had just written about by saying the commentator, referring to himself, cannot finish writing on this chapter without a sense that soiled and clumsy hands have touched a thing of exquisite beauty and holiness. Here what is true of all scripture is true in special measure that no comment can, adequate, can be adequate to, to so great a theme. Yet no communicator can excuse himself from the duty of trying to make plain what these matchless words have come to signify for him. And listen to this last part. And no Christian can excuse himself from the duty of trying to show in his life what these words have come to mean for him. This, this is a very, very important chapter in the Bible. They are, all are. But this, this, this chapter is incredibly important to know and to be known by. So with that established, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13 together. Will you just uh, follow along with me as I read it? If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. 
And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall fully know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen, that's right. It's the very word of God. So what's the answer to our question? should be pretty obvious from that text. What is the identifying marker of one's maturity, one's godliness, Christ-likeness, one's capacity, willingness, ability to love? Full stop. So I want to start our time together by stating this as plainly as I can to you, to myself. If you want to know how mature you are, you really only need to look at one trait in your life. Your capacity and willingness to love. And let me take it a step further and say, if you want to know how much you have truly embraced the gospel and allowed it to transform your life, you need to look no further than how well you love others. Not how long you've been a Christian. Not how strong your theology is. Not how gifted you are at leading others, as we'll see tomorrow. Not how many Bible studies you've led or taught. Not your faithfulness to attend church or give to the church. How would you love people? So, that's kind of just introduction to this weekend. Where we're going to go from here, the next two talks tomorrow morning... We're going to look at the first three verses and talk about what manhood isn't in light of that. What manhood isn't. That's where Paul starts. That's where we're going to start, what manhood isn't. And then after that, we're going to look at verses 4 through 13 and talk about what manhood is. Now, remember, remember when I use that word manhood, how I'm using it synonymously with our Christ-likeness, our godliness, our maturity. Um. So, uh, you know, that, that was kind of a long introduction to the weekend. You always kind of have to start that way as you're getting things cranked up for a weekend. I've done enough of these to know that at least. Um, so in light of that, I wanted to kind of just take it easy from here, uh, so to speak. And, and what we're going to do for the rest of the evening, evening is that I have one point 
built around one word with one application. Okay, so this is going to be the whole keep it simple, stupid, you know, acrostic. That's what we're running with for the rest. Just one word, one point, one application. Uh, and I know that's right, and an amen on that. Um, what I want to do, though, is prove to you uh, that this chapter is explicitly the manliest chapter in the Bible. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Uh, but I'm going to start in kind of a different place. Where we're going we're to kind of mix things up a little bit, and we're actually going to flip forward a few chapters further along in 1 Corinthians to where Paul wraps things up over in 1 Corinthians 16. So if you'll flip a few chapters over, this is going to be our text for the evening. Um, it's right here in his summary. It's kind of couched with some real personal... Uh, him engaging in some real uh, specific dynamics to what the Church of Corinth is, is dealing with on an interpersonal level. And kind of right in the middle of it, I want you to read with me uh, verses 13 and 14, this one passage. You can just take a look at it. Listen to what Paul, this is, this is incredibly sharp. Uh, just kind of sticks out in the flow of what he's dealing with in this, in this part of his letter. This is what he says, Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. All right, that's what we're going to look at. So let me, before we go into our one point, one word, one application, let me just pray and um, we'll continue after that. Father, I have no idea what, um, what all was on the list that we just created sure it was a lot of uh, important things, but God, I pray this weekend um, you'd help us to know what it means to act like men, and uh, we learn how to do that by learning what it means to love, how, how to love. God, as we move into this type of uh, topic, I just feel it in my own being that there's just huge gaps of weakness, insufficiency. I think about the ways I fail to love my wife and my daughters, my neighbors. I pray that for this weekend you let us be okay with wrestling with all of the um, um, failure we experience in this category so that your cross cross of Jesus would become all the more precious to us and empowering for us. We need your spirit to do this, so we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so it's really important as we dig into this one passage here uh, to know that this is, again, Paul's summary statement. And, and what I want you to do for a moment is just imagine if you were in the room as this letter was first being read out loud. And this is a really, hear this, this is a really important practice, by the way. I like to call it context of reality. Um, If we want to be real students of God's word, we must train ourselves to ask the question, how would the original audience have heard this text, right? Um, Not what I think about it uh, primarily, not what I feel about it primarily as a priority. uh, By asking the question, what would the original audience have felt or understood this text to mean, we give priority to the author's intent, why he actually wrote it, his idea, not our idea. Uh, Our ideas are often too historically and culturally removed to be very accurate at first, much less helpful. And so we want to understand 
uh, how, did, how did the church of Corinth, as they were hearing this letter read out loud, most likely at least the first time by Timothy, what were they thinking? What were they processing? So we can start thinking and processing some of the same things. Now, in order to do that, just to quickly flow through the book to kind of catch you up to speed to where they would have been. Um, if this sermon is, was read straight through by Timothy or subsequently by whatever house church leader was reading this letter to, to his small congregation, it would have taken about an hour for him to have just read this book. Now think about it, uh, this would have made pastor's jobs much easier, right? I mean, the, the sermon was the letter, right? You, you didn't, sermons were the letter, Right? The reason we have sermons now is because we are culturally and historically removed from the content. And so we need somebody who has given some time uh, to train themselves to help us understand what the, what the content was actually supposed to mean. So we throw in all kinds of fancy stuff like illustrations and, and, and shattering mirrors with apples and all kinds of things like that. that. That's not what sermons were then. Sermons were just reading the letters. So this would have taken about an hour long. In Paul, this was a marathon sermon, right? If you're familiar with the letter in chapter 1, he begins by challenging their view of the cross, right? That it's, it's actually folly to the world if they're, uh, for those who are perishing. That's what he says about the cross, helping his church understand why they're experiencing such ridicule. And then for the next few chapters, he moves on to the topic of different leaders and, and um, popularity of those leaders and why they have such popularity. And so we learn in chapters 2 and 3 that Paul actually strategically, when he visited the church of Corinth, decided to know, the, to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, to not use any fancy language, to, to really posture himself in such a way that he wouldn't be likened to the people seeking popularity by the way they taught. That's what, he, that's what he says in chapters 2 and 3. And then in chapter 4, he actually says that if you're a leader, you should actually not be looking for a platform, but you are a servant of servants. That's what the leaders should be posturing themselves as. And then, and then we just have this litany of kind of church-specific dynamics uh, he turns to issues of sexual immorality. He turns to issues of lawsuits against one another, principles of marriage, how to think about the food that's been offered to idols, which, uh, you know, as we're eating pig here, I'm pretty sure it wasn't offered to idols, but that just popped in my mind as, as I was saying that. Um, idolatry in general in 8 through 9, I'm sorry, in chapter 10, head coverings for women in the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, and then in chapter 12 through 14, which is the context for our passage that we're going to look at this weekend, is a lengthy discussion on the spiritual gifts, actually. Not on love, but on the spiritual gifts. And in chapter 12 and 14, as he's talking about the spiritual gifts, he plops chapter 13 right down in the middle of it. And we're going to talk about why that's the case tomorrow. What I want to accomplish in just rolling through that quickly with you is to realize that if you were sitting there listening to this letter, it would have been a marathon evening of just content coming from all different angles and sides and, you know, very personal Right? Paul, Paul is writing from somewhere far off. He's heard about what's happening at this church. He's very limited opportunity to help, and so he just is writing this out. That's the context. And then maybe that'll help you imagine that at the very end of the letter, Paul just drops the bomb. Act like men. Act like men. Um... How do you think they would have felt emotionally depleted after sitting there and listening to this and, and, and then act like men? Imagine if the same thing happened to you. 
Eric goes away on a trip. Now, let me just preface by saying Eric does not uh, uh, claim to have apostolic authority, so this is just illustration, right? But Eric goes away on a trip, and while he's away, he hears about you. One of the elders here at Cape Bible Chapel, they hear about you, and they decide to pin you a letter. And they first challenge your view of Jesus, They challenge your followership and your loyalty to the church. They press into particular sins. Maybe you like the church in Corinth. Maybe it's sexual impurity of some sort. Imagine you're just reading this lengthy letter. And then he goes into your behavior at work and whether or whether or not you actually are fulfilling your roles as husbands or uh, sons or brothers. And then he kind of minimizes but really just properly prioritizes the usefulness of your specific gifts to the church and then he caps off the letter with some theological reinforcement on the resurrection like Paul does in chapter 15 and then in chapter 16 he just thinks you know what as I'm wrapping this up let me just also say act like a man Eric man that's harsh dude I can't believe you do that to people (laughs) not that he would How would you feel? Angry, discouraged, challenged, hopeful, thankful? I think what we have to acknowledge if we're going to get anything out of times like this weekend is that we are a long way from what we were created to be. Amen. Amen. We can receive feedback like this from anyone. And if we're firmly rooted, I like what uh, Jason said when he was trying to get the fruit off the hat. At the very end, if if, if Jesus wasn't in my heart, I wouldn't have done that, you know? Uh, we have Christ. We, we therefore have confidence and uh, courage to be faced with these type of challenges, knowing that we've been redeemed. Right? So the one point is this from this passage. Real men love real well. Real men love real well. The one word from this passage I'm just going to say it in the Greek, not because I, you need to know it in the Greek. I just like, I just like how it sounds. Andridzomai is the word. That phrase, act like men, at least that's how my Bible translated it. In your translation, it might be translated, be courageous, something like that. Act like men, that's one Greek word. It's andridzomai. It's a really extraordinary word. This is the one word aspect, right? And it's extraordinary for a few reasons. One, it's unique. This is the only occurrence of it in the Bible, for sure, and and as far as my limited capacity to research these type of things goes, I don't believe it it appears anywhere else in ancient Greek that we know of. So as far as we know, Paul invented this thing, right? Another reason it's unique is because of its construction. Uh, It's from the Greek word for man, not one of the gender-neutral words, like, you know, the word for brothers often in the Bible can be translated brothers and sisters. You usually see that at the bottom little footnote thing. This isn't that word. This is the word for man. And then Paul does something extraordinary with it. He just kind of turns it into a verb. That's what he does with it. It's kind of like Google, right? Google's a, a, a noun, but when we go Google something, we turn it into a... It's like we put feet on the noun, right? So here, it's, it's a plural noun, men, and then he, he just adds a verb construction to it. So it's like, just, it's, it's, like, it's not just men, it's men, you know. The Bible, the, 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 the translators have to figure out what to do with that, and so a lot of them have act like men. 
Um, therefore, again, this passage is really the only one I can think of that's explicitly a passage about growing as men. It's the manliest passage. Some of you are familiar with the story of Hugh Latimer and Bishop Nicholas Ridley. I think this story gets at the heart of what this word means. These were two friends who were burned at the stake in 1555 for heresy. And their heresy was that they didn't support uh, Queen Mary, Bloody Mary. That was their heresy. They actually wanted to remain faithful to Scripture. Uh, Queen Mary didn't appreciate that. And so sentenced them to death in 1555, and as the flames rose around them, it's documented that the older Latimer said to the younger Bishop Ridley, his, his I guess, pastor, this is what he said, be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as shall never be put out. Play the man. I think that's what this word means. Play the man. So real quick, how does he couch this word? He couches this word uh, with a lot of concepts that we would expect in a passage on manhood because they're military words. Uh, He's running with a military metaphor here. So it's really interesting. And we're not going to get to spend as much time on on these parts of the passage as I would like. But the first thing you see there in the text is be watchful, right? This was the role of a watchman. Watchmen were such for two reasons. They were on the lookout for enemies and they were on the lookout for the sun coming up and, and, and for two different reasons that, ex, that, that would cause them to, uh, to have an adrenaline rush, right? For enemies, all of a sudden they have to warn their comrades it's time to fight. When the sun comes up, then they can finally relax, right? They can rest. They have, they have finished their night of uh, being on the tower, so to speak. He's, he's calling the church in Corinth, specifically the men in Corinth, to be watchful. In other words, to focus intently and vigilantly. In other words, he's asking them to fight against distraction and laziness. So the little blanks I have there, again, we're not going to have too much time to dive into them. I wish we did. But the first one there is to be a man. He's to be focused as opposed to distracted or lazy. First time I shared this, I did a little bit of research. This was years ago, and so I'm sure these statistics aren't even right anymore, but it was I was sharing with a group of college students, and I was trying to help them understand what does it mean to be distracted and lazy. So maybe for some of you younger guys, this might be a helpful metaphor. This was uh, a couple weeks after a very uh, uh, important video game was being released. Okay, this is years ago, so it's probably an old game at this point. And uh, this was right as, you know, you were able to track how often people were playing video games because they were online, you know, back in the day, they weren't online, right? And, uh, and so the first five days this video game was released, 31.4 million hours were spent playing it collectively across I guess just the U.S. I don't think it was an international statistic. And, and I did a little bit of math because I learned how to do that, you know, back in fifth grade. And for the average male's life, we get 657,000 hours in our life, generally speaking. That means that the first five days that that video game was out, 50 entire human lives were wasted playing it. Like 50 people existed and died in terms of how their life was used. 
And, and I'm assuming for many of you, for some of you, this may, video games may be very pertinent. For some of you, they're not. But it doesn't mean we shouldn't be asking the question, what is it that causes us to be distracted? What causes us to lose focus? Something we should discuss further at some point. One of my favorite quotes, some men die by bullets, some men die by flames, other men die inch by inch playing silly little games. What are those for you? And then Paul moves on with his military metaphor and he says, stand firm in the faith. Right there you can see it in the text. He's, he's uh, continuing on, helping us uh, see a soldier, right, digging in with his feet so as not to be moved. That's what it means to stand firm. Uh, what Paul's getting at is whether or not you're someone who will plant their feet and prepare for whatever danger is charging in your direction or you just toss your weapons and you run away, right? We've all seen those movies and, and these, you know, these two opposing um, factions are about to do battle, you know, those, those movies of ancient times, you see the shields being planted in front of them and they, they form like a huge, that, that's kind of the imagery going on, on here. Are we going to be people that dig our feet in as danger's approaching and stand firm or just throw off whatever we can so we can run as fast as we can away from the danger? This became in, uh, incredibly important to me just a week ago. Uh, see, I didn't grow up in a church or anything like that. I had some friends that introduced me to Christ, and one in particular that took me to all the youth events and youth gatherings, and I got to hear about Christ for years before I actually received Christ. And that individual, a friend of mine, called me a few weeks ago, and he's had a rough go the last 15 years. His wife left him um, early on in their marriage, uh, she had regrets and took off, and he got remarried, and they've had some challenges, and, and he's got three beautiful kids now, but they've, it's been, there's been one hardship after another with him. He's had some family difficulties, and on the phone, this guy who had introduced me to Christ uh, said this. He said, Brett, uh, if I found better friendship at a universalist church, in other words, a church that really holds to no, nothing being true, uh, whatever you want to believe is true, I'd go there instead. And we had a long conversation that I've gotten to think a lot about over the last week. And, and I think that we're all in danger of, of letting circumstances dictate the, whether or not we stand firm. And Paul says, be strong. Oh, so to be a man means to hold on rather than to let go. And then to be strong just the, the, the idea there is that a war is made up of many battles. So to be a man means to pursue righteousness rather than cutting corners. Paul's describing someone there uh, who's ready for the long haul. That's what it means to be strong. Someone who doesn't grow morally fatigued or weak in the flesh. A dear brother of mine who I recently met is a few hundred days clean. And I think, man, this is what it means to be strong is to keep persevering and being clean pursuing righteousness rather than cutting corners. So these are the words and concepts that we would expect to be there in a conversation about manhood. Much more should be said about them. I hope you have some good discussion around them at some point. Um, but what I wanted to do as we finish up tonight is focus on that last thing that's said there in this passage that you might not have expected to be there on a passage about manhood before tonight. But now I hope it just makes sense that it's there. Let all you do be done in love. 
And it's not just in addition to the other imperatives of that passage. It is the overarching principle guiding all of the other imperatives, all of the other commands. I want to to establish that as we set up tomorrow. Because I think that if we focus on truly growing as someone who can love well, then the love will cover over a multitude of, of sins. Whatever else is on your list that are really important items of what it means to walk with God. I believe that if we focus on, on growing as people who reflect the love of Christ to the people around us, it, it, I think the, the rest of the things on your list are just other manifestations of that, of, of loving the Lord and loving other people. And I don't want you to think for a moment that love has no place in a discussion on manhood or even Paul's discussion here on war, right? Jesus' love wasn't a gushy love, so to speak, It wasn't a cross-stitched poem love, so to speak. It was a self-sacrificial love. And how much more warlike can you get than to refer to the self-sacrifice of an individual that's most clearly displayed in war? Right? There's no greater feat of courage. There's no greater love displayed than a man laid down his life. And to love sacrificially is to display the love of Christ that he's extended to us. And I want to pick up there tomorrow, but it's really important that we establish that. I just remember the first time I heard that, and I, can, I still remember where I was sitting, because I had my list. I had my idea of what it meant to grow in my faith and to be a godly man, and then I heard that speaker say, love is the only identifying marker. It shattered my world for a while there. So our one application is this, we must teach men to love. Um, I remember speaking to a group of college-age guys, and I asked them to do this for me. I had them all raise their hand. I'm not going to have you guys do it, but I asked them to all raise their hand. There's, uh, It was probably about 200 or so guys. And I said, keep your hand raised if you, if you know your father. And a good handful of hands went down. And I said, keep your hands raised if you lived with your father growing up. And at that point, about, all, you know, about half of the room had their hands raised still. That's kind of the statistic right now. And I said, keep your hand raised if you would say that your father was committed to being involved with your life. A lot of them went down there. I said, keep your hand raised if you would say that your father intentionally thought to develop you into a man. And in a room of that many college guys, no more than a dozen had their hands raised. I'd imagine if we did something like that, we'd we'd see something similar, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it was a unique group. The bottom line, though, is that many of us need to be refathered by Jesus. And we need to be vessels to help him refather people. Guys. So my hope and prayer is that the Lord would use each of us to refather a fatherless generation by teaching them what it means to play the man. And, and we know from tonight what that means, teaching them how to love. I love. Yeah, they'll need to know how to change their flat tires and tie sailors' knots, although I don't know how to do that. 
but they need to learn how to love. I've got three girls, and I am asked, for some reason, I'm asked all the time, so please don't ask me this, uh, man, do you wish you had a son? One of my daughters even asked me that one time. And of course, I say, of course not. Um, The other thing I say is that I've worked with college students for 16 years, and in that time, I've had the opportunity of helping hundreds of boys grow into men. (laughs) Right? I mean, an 18-year-old in college right now is probably the, this is generally speaking, the maturity level of of someone much younger. I won't say any age specific. I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Much younger than 18. And so I've gotten to see hundreds of boys, boy 18-year-olds, come into college and graduate as 22-year-old men. And so whether or not I ever have a son, whether or not we ever choose to adopt, which I don't, that, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, that's, I think I'm maybe past that stage, depends on who you ask between my wife and I, I'll be just fine. I've, I've gotten to see a lot of boys grow up, be a part of that. And, and for you, my question is, are you thinking to invest into people's life here at this church or in your neighborhood? How are you loving people? Who are you helping to grow into men? Let me pray. Father, we're grateful for the love of Jesus that we sang about earlier tonight. I pray you would grow us to be men that embrace that love on deeper and deeper levels that maybe even this weekend, maybe for some of us for the first time in years, we would experience this reality as, a, um, as something more than just a theological truth, uh, but as something that is compelling us outward to love others. I pray you would do that. Only you can do that in our hearts through the work of your spirit as we're hearing your word. So use your word, God, to resonate deeply um, and change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.